Good morning. My name is Jeff Smith. I appreciate the introduction. Uh, it's great to be with you. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to fill the pulpit as needed uh, now and then over the years. If you don't know me, I'm a ruling elder up the street at uh, Peace Presbyterian Church, and uh, we send greetings. Uh, I'm also a candidate under care of Eastern Carolina Presbytery, which means that uh, at this point in my life, I'm um, examining whether God would call me to full-time pastoral ministry. So this experience uh, is also helpful for me to just confirm uh, God's guidance in my life. Um, in a moment, I'll ask you to look with me in your copy of the scriptures at Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. So if you want to get that ready, that would be helpful. It doesn't take a visiting preacher to make it clear that we live our lives in the midst of a spiritual battle, uh, individually and collectively. We're in a spiritual war, and yet a war that the Lord Jesus will ultimately win for his people. And yet, we have a role to play in it, don't we? Uh, God promised Israel victory if they would trust in him, but they still had to go out to the battlefield with weapons. They still had to risk their lives as far as sight is concerned. And so it is with us spiritually. And today, I'd like us to consider the war we're in and the primary weapons that God has given us to fight that war, as well as our motives for fighting it. Obviously, uh, not only are we living in a spiritual battle everywhere, everywhere, but we're also living in times of great change. Um, a year ago, nobody would have been in this building, or maybe a little over a year ago now, wearing masks, uh, for example. And this change includes your church. You somewhat recently called a new pastor uh, to serve you and serve alongside you. Uh, you're trying to maintain and grow a church during times of a pandemic. Uh, a challenge for all churches around the world. And you're in a town. I was driving here from uh, Cary, where I live this morning, down 55, and I was amazed at all the change uh, on either side of the road. So you have a town you're living in and uh, serving, seeking to, to reach for Christ that is growing and changing quickly. I want you to consider this morning what ministries are necessary for being a fruitful church. In other words, what are the priorities and activities that the church needs most when you strip everything down to sheer basics? Uh, some churches, for example, these days feature a coffee shop uh, for attracting members of the community. Now, is that a good idea? Is there anything wrong with the coffee shop? I think it's possible that it is a good idea. Many people like coffee, and coffee shops are ways that people can be drawn in. Uh, but you can imagine that a coffee shop uh, of, for a church of any size could distract leadership, couldn't it? It could, it could take up everybody's time, everybody means well, um, in an effort that may distract from the central function of the church. So maybe a coffee shop isn't necessary. I think that's pretty obvious. How about a ballroom dance ministry or a church art gallery? There are actually uh, PCA churches that have both of those ministries. And I think we should think about those efforts in Christian love. We shouldn't shoot them down and think, well, that's kind of crazy, even if we disagree with them or don't adopt them for our own church. And God can use ballroom dance lessons. He can use looking at beautiful artwork to build relationships in the context of the church. But these are not in the Bible. They're not essential for the faithfulness of the church to do the work of Christ. What's more, like the coffee shop, they run some risk of distracting from the most central work of the church, 
without some kind of priorities being laid out by church leadership. All right, how about a school? Children need to be educated. Um, a lot of churches have school. My, schools, my own church, Peace Presbyterian, has Peace Preschool, which provides us an opportunity to help young children develop and give them an understanding, understanding of the gospel. And many of the preschool parents are unchurched people. So these children are getting an opportunity, together with their parents, to be exposed to the gospel for the first time, uh, perhaps. And so I consider our preschool to be a success in that respect. But is it the core of what makes us a church? Could it distract from the central purpose of the church? It's not at the core, and it could distract. Today, friends, we're about to read of a church that had a ministry to impoverished widows. It's hard to imagine a more noble work of service than a ministry to impoverished widows. Yet such a ministry, we're told, posed risks to the church's faithfulness, as we will read. It was a necessary ministry that the love of Christ required, but even feeding poor widows was not the top mission of the church. And such a ministry could even have prevented the apostles from praying and proclaiming Christ according to God's calling. What I'm getting at is if we're not faithful, the good can be the enemy of the best. We can become distracted from what the Lord Jesus wants most when we focus primarily even on legitimate needs that Christian love requires. As a church, you must maintain a primary focus on bringing the kingdom, the evident reign, in other words, of God to earth. If we're to be faithful as individuals and together as this congregation or as my congregation, we need to keep first things first. So please turn with me to a passage describing the situation in the early Christian congregation in Jerusalem. This is shortly after Pentecost. This is in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. Please follow along silently. I will read from the English Standard Version of Acts 6, 1 through 4. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve apostles, that is, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need you to give us understanding, to enlighten us, to enliven our hearts in response to your scriptures. Help us to understand that we may glorify and enjoy you in this life and forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but um, on Saturday mornings, I routinely have for myself a fairly detailed to-do list. It's my day, you know, I'm it's my day to get things done. And um, on Saturday mornings, I wake up, I'm full of life, I have my list, and I'm intent usually on getting yard work done, chores, maybe some necessary shopping, and if there's time left over, maybe go for a hike or watch a movie. But as I uh, get started on my task, I often discover something else that needs to be cleaned or maintained or fixed. 
And uh, I go to the local home improvement store, and before I know it, at least an hour has gone by, and I'm $100 poorer. Uh, <laughs> I mean well by thinking about all these tasks I discover to do, but if I don't keep my to-do list handy, um, I'm going to get so involved in these other pursuits that I won't accomplish what I set out to do. And I get disappointed uh, when Saturday ends. And the church is this way. God calls churches to serve their members and those in their community in a variety of ways, both formal and informal, and I just described several of them. Sky is the limit. But we see in this passage that, while without question, God calls the church to serve, act mercifully uh, towards those in need. Uh, other activities, prayer and ministry of the word, are indispensable to the mission of the church. They're not just good ideas. They're not just something else. But they're actually at the core of what the church is about. And we must continue to place these activities as our top priorities for the church. Otherwise, kind of like me on my Saturday, we will lose focus on what God wants most of the church. Look again at that passage in Acts 6. In the first century, as we can see in this passage, it was the regular practice of the church to distribute food, maybe other necessities also, daily to widows, perhaps others in need. Now, widows in first century Palestine faced poverty after they became widows. They relied on their husbands, their children, maybe other family members to provide for the household. And so they lived without widespread public assistance programs such as we have in the West today. So the church had to be a lot more active than we're accustomed to if the poor among them were simply going to eat. And chapter 6, verse 1 in the English Standard Version speaks of the Hellenists in the church. Who were these people? These were Jews who originally lived outside Palestine, the region where Jerusalem is, and they later came to the area. And the Hellenists spoke Greek and they had other customs unique to the regions they came from. The Hellenists were outsiders. They were uh, the transplants. They were the new kids on the block, so to speak. And we're told back, you don't have to look there in your Bible, but back in Acts 2, verse 5, we're told that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven. So Jerusalem was like New York City or London. There were people there from all over the world. And these Hellenists were among those people who came from outside. And in the church, widows of this Hellenistic background were being neglected by the Jerusalem church, whereas widows who had lived in Jerusalem their whole lives were receiving the church's daily care. Now, we're not told exactly why the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. Maybe it was simply a matter that the apostles were overwhelmed in their duties. Um, or perhaps the long-timers in the church simply felt more comfortable with widows in the church that they had known for many years or who seemed similar to themselves. And so they overlooked the newcomers. We just don't know. But we can gather from the passage that the church took for granted that widows in need should receive daily provisions from the congregation and that, and that there is to be no favoritism in how we serve one another. But we discover in verse two that favoritism in food distribution that was not the only problem in this church. The primary task of the apostles, these messengers that Jesus himself uh, 
appeared to after his resurrection, um, these apostles were called to preach the word of salvation in Christ. And because of their leadership role in the church, they were also assuming responsibility to care for the needy. Um, you may not know this, but if there are no deacons in a, in a PCA church, for example, in a church in our denomination, the elders have to assume that duty. And so it was with the apostles. There were no deacons yet. And so they were doing everything. They were leading all the ministries. And they said to all the believers there in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, there's nothing wrong or demeaning about serving tables. Um, the apostles were about to make clear that serving the needy in the church is a required task of the church. Consider also that their Lord and ours, the Lord Jesus, washed the feet of the disciples. So it's nothing demeaning about serving tables, but serving food was not what God had primarily called the apostles, the primary leaders of the church, to do. And as we see in verse 4, the primary task of the apostles was to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. By extension, the most primary tasks of the church were the practices of prayer and the ministry of the word, both directly, such as by the apostles, and also indirectly, by enabling others to do these things faithfully, devotedly, and in support of the apostles' ministry. We learn later in Acts chapter 4, that, or in Acts chapter 6, that God solved the problems of the unfair food distribution while also enabling the apostles to do the work God called them to do. God used the congregation to nominate seven leaders of service, seven men who it seems were the first ever church deacons, uh, a, uh, an office that continues to this day. But what I want to examine today are those first things that we need to keep first in our life as the church. As the apostles at the Jerusalem church discerned, the good can indeed be the enemy of the best. And we can become distracted from what God wants most for his church, even by doing works of service that God himself requires. God is building, friends, in this world a spiritual kingdom for his son by his Holy Spirit. But not only by his spirit, but by us. And our priorities can go astray if we let the church's primary focus drift, even for, with good intentions, drift towards meeting the needs that even God's love requires us to meet. These are secondary. They're supportive of the primary mission. Faithfulness as a church means keeping first things first. And keeping first things first means connecting everything we do in the church to the church's primary mission. As the apostles remind us in Act 6, we must pursue the church's primary mission using the church's primary means and relying on our primary motivator for accomplishing the mission. What is the church's primary mission? In other words, what is most important to the Lord Jesus for us, his people, to accomplish here on earth? We must advance the kingdom of God. Okay, well... That's our primary mission, but what is the kingdom of God then? We know assisting needy church members is a calling of the church, but this passage teaches, teaches us that it is not the primary mission of the church, because if it were, I mean, the apostles, the primary leaders of the church, would have continued dividing their time and efforts to serve the widows. But instead, it seems they felt compelled to be on the front lines 
of an even more essential goal for the church. Perhaps you've studied the book of Acts, and if you have, you might have noticed something someone pointed out to me a, a while ago, that the, the book of Acts begins and ends with this phrase, the kingdom of God. This phrase is, uh, serves as bookends to the message of Acts. Acts 1-3, you don't have to turn there. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then, then at the very end, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, the apostle Paul lived there, that is in Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God. The scripture doesn't give us a tidy definition of it, but consider it as any kingdom, except God is the one who originates it, and he has placed his son, Jesus Christ, as its appointed king. The kingdom of God is, to summarize, the evident rule of God. The rule of God come to bloom, come to manifest, and that is our, primary, is our primary mission, brothers and sisters. Advancing the kingdom of God, in fact, is what we actually pray for in what we know as the Lord's Prayer. From Matthew 6, 9 through 13, as the English Standard Version renders it, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus' model prayer begins by addressing God as our Heavenly Father and then offers six petitions. And the first three of them are requests that God bring about his full reign on earth to the same extent that God is already reigning and ruling without any hindrance or obstacle or opposition in heaven now. And the final three requests are for our own needs. The Westminster Shorter Catechism elaborates. Question 102 says, what do we pray for specifically in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened or brought more quickly. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for the church to be strengthened, but not just strengthened, but also enlarged. Friends, we're praying for evangelism. We're praying for the making of disciples. How else will the Father's name be hallowed? How else can God's will be performed on earth increasingly as it is in heaven unless we are praying for his kingdom to come and God is answering? Have you ever wondered why the church, at least here in the West, seems to be weak and in decline? We read Acts and we are both encouraged and put to shame by the boldness of the early church, at least I am. We wonder, why don't we experience the growth of the church today that they did? But the Lord must desire to use us, even the likes of us, or he wouldn't have given us this prayer. 
this daily prayer, to cause his future kingdom to break into the present world even now, more and more. Thy kingdom come is the primary mission that drove the apostles and the early church. They didn't let the situation of the Hellenistic widows get in the way of that mission. Rather, they mobilized the whole church body to support that mission by calling on the congregation to nominate the first deacons. They connected everything in the church to the church's primary mission, thy kingdom come. And so must we, both outwardly and in our thinking. And that brings me to my second point. What are the church's primary means for accomplishing the primary mission? How do we, how, what does faithfulness look like? We must give ourselves to kingdom prayer and the ministry of the word. These are our primary means of advancing the kingdom. The apostles and the elders following in their footsteps in their ministry had prayer and the ministry of the word as their primary duties in serving the church. This doesn't mean that those leaders were the only ones in the church called to pray or communicate the teaching about Jesus Christ. No. Rather, they made these the highest priority activities in the church, and they organized the church around those activities. I think what the apostles were doing here in Acts 4 is freeing their own schedules to pray and to preach the gospel, but also connecting all of church life back to these priorities of prayer and ministry of the word. The apostles needed the deacons and those helping them to serve the widows if the church was going to be faithful to its primary work. God didn't call the, the church to let the widows starve, but he wasn't changing his priority of expanding his kingdom on earth through the primary means, prayer and the word, means that he himself has appointed. So feeding widows is essential to Christian love. But kingdom prayer and the ministry of the word are essential to being the church and expanding the gracious influence of Christ over the kingdom of darkness in this world. Focusing all of church life on just two primary activities is simple. It sounds simple, and it is simple, but it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy because in the local church, we're tempted to fix our attention on even completely legitimate needs and lose our focus on the kingdom of God. Some of you have probably attended meetings of uh, the, the session, your elder board, the diaconate, or of other committees, and you know what I mean. I mean, these are necessary tasks that you get involved with. Feeding the widows was a necessary task, uh, but it can be distracting too. It can consume your attention individually and as a church. We're also tempted to rely on our own smarts for expanding the kingdom or rely on programs or special events, and these aren't wrong. Or we might just think that being nice is enough to bring people into the kingdom, and that's necessary. We should love people, and that should show up in the ways we treat them. But the apostles make it clear here, friends, that in the Jerusalem church of Acts 6, we can change the world for Christ. And prayer and the word are God's specially appointed means for doing just that. We can feed widows without prayer and without the ministry of the word, and it would be an act of Christ-like love. But without prayer and the word, feeding them would not expand the kingdom of the one true God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Why is prayer one of the two primary ways God expands his kingdom on earth? We need to appeal to God because only God 
by his Holy Spirit, can convict of sin and change hearts to trust Christ. We learn this from John 3, where Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the need to be born again. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work. But he uses prayer. Consider the frequency and boldness we are to have in praying for the kingdom. Consider the frequency. In Jesus' own model prayer that I just mentioned, what we call the Lord's Prayer, we pray for our daily bread. It's a daily prayer. And so I think we can conclude that we should pray daily for God's kingdom to come, for this work of evangelism, of the Lord taking over more and more lives for his glory, for their salvation, for his will to be carried out on earth just as as it is in heaven. That's a daily prayer. So frequently, we should come to God about expanding his kingdom through us. Consider the boldness we're to have in praying for the kingdom also, that the God of the universe would have, would have us to petition him uh, to accomplish this amazing work, a worldwide change that culminates in the return of Christ, that culminates in the resurrection of the dead and in the new heavens and the new earth. God would have us ask him for this. We properly emphasize God's sovereign control over the world. Most of us here are what we would call Calvinists, And we emphasize his all-powerful grace in saving all who will ever come to believe. But God uses means, and he has ordained our prayers. He's commanded our prayers to change history for the sake of humanity. Our praying matters, and it does not fall on deaf ears when it's a prayer that God himself has given to us to use. The early church knew this. Uh, In chapter 4 of Acts, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read from it. In chapter 4, Peter and John, the apostles, returned from being detained by Jewish leaders who had commanded them to stop preaching the gospel, stop speaking of this Lord Jesus Christ. But the church prayed, asking for power to speak of Christ even more boldly. It says there, starting in verse 24, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the prophets and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 4, 24 through 31. Obviously, they believed in the utter sovereignty of God over all events. But after being arrested, they prayed. And they didn't pray with a list of their needs. They did not ask God to stop the persecution, but they asked him for boldness to be faithful witnesses to Christ. There is nothing stopping you and me from praying this way now, from, from praying with this fervency. 
And there's nothing from stopping God from answering by giving us boldness to speak about Christ, whether from a pulpit or from across a picnic table. Do you think that God does not love to answer this kind of prayer? God wants to extend the kingdom of his son, but he wants us to come to him for it. Christian, do you desire that? Do I desire that? John Knox, a name familiar to many of us, he's known as the 16th century leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland and the founder of, the Scottish, of Scottish Presbyterianism. And by the end of his life, he was probably more known for his praying than for his theology. Of all the prayers of Knox, Lord, give me Scotland ere I die or before I die, is probably the most known, if you know history. It was not an arrogant request, but rather a compassionate plea that came from his intense desire to see his countrymen be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. His prayer boldly expressed a desire for God to expand the kingdom. When was the last time you prayed, I prayed, for your fellow countrymen, like Knox did for his? Do we sincerely pray for the spiritual rebirth of our fellow Americans? The Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots at that time, allegedly said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. She witnessed herself the answers of Knox's prayers. Humanly speaking, Knox's prayer started and fueled Scotland's Reformation. God used John Knox and those who joined him in ministry to bring a revival among God's people. So perhaps an application point for us is to pray the Lord's Prayer daily, but to realize what you're praying for. You're praying for the growth of the kingdom of God on earth. You're praying for evangelism, leading up to the return of Christ, for more and more people to be reached. Elaborate on that prayer when you pray it. Pray for your neighbors, your coworkers, and others who need to be saved from their sins by looking to Christ alone. Together with prayer, why is the word one of the two primary ways God expands his kingdom on earth? We need to communicate the word of Christ because salvation is only through him. People need to learn about Christ to have saving faith in Christ. Probably many of you here have heard the quote, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Has anyone heard that quote? Okay, yeah. Uh, I understand that it's wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi in the first millennium, but if the apostles in Acts 6 believed this, they surely would have been satisfied to redirect the primary focus of the church to feeding the poor at the expense of the ministry of the word, but they were not. No. People in this world need to hear the actual words of the gospel to be saved. Uh, They need to know in their minds who he is. Certainly, our entire life is a witness. I don't mean to diminish that at all. How you treat other people is absolutely essential, but that's just the start. That's just a signpost. That's just a pointer. That's just an evidence of the reality behind it that Jesus is a historical person Uh, who acted in history, who is acting in history. They need to learn about him if they are to be saved. God's word is not a dead letter. It's powerful. It's effective. Jesus said of his own teaching, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Apostle Paul 
wrote in his letter to the Romans that the gospel or good news about Jesus is power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he wrote, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Hebrew and the Hellenist. But Paul also asks in Romans 10, 14, rhetorically, how then will people call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him, meaning Christ, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Communicating the word of Christ, whether by apostles in the past, pastors and elders today, or any of us, formally or informally, the ministry of the word is absolutely essential to accomplishing the church's mission. So invite people to this worship service or to the live stream. Uh, read and discuss the Bible at home and with others. Be ready to share the only news that gives lasting hope. Get to be good at giving a concise summary of who Jesus was and who he is, how he saves sinners. Think about the various people in your life who don't know Christ. It's not by chance that you have a relationship with them. God has sovereignly placed you there, just as he sovereignly does all things. And how you might explain the good news to them. What are they looking for in life that only Jesus can legitimately satisfy? My last major point. What is the church's primary motivator for using these means to accomplish the mission? In other words, what will spur us on to use kingdom prayer in the word to accomplish God's mission for the church. We tend to pray and speak most fervently about our strongest needs and desires, don't we? I know I do. In times of past unemployment or underemployment or um, when I had concerns about a medical diagnosis or a need to make a, a major life decision, those are the times when I've sought God most fervently. Uh, with my most frequent and earnest, even desperate prayers. And I must say, he's answered me graciously more times than I can remember. But our most intense prayers reveal our hearts. Students, maybe uh, some of you struggle to earn the kinds of grades your parents expect or that you demand of yourselves. When you're in danger of failing a class, you ask God earnestly for better study habits and better academic results, and rightly so. That's the proper response to your situation. But it reveals your heart, reveals what's on your heart. Perhaps some of you here need a job or income, and you update your resume, you apply to open positions, but as time stretches on and your bank account dwindles, you seek God more and more fervently. And this is right, but it reveals your desire, doesn't it? And for some of you, there's no way to even continue living in this world unless God specially intervenes. We prayed for several people uh, a little bit ago in this service. Unless he specially intervenes to cure you of some serious and life-threatening condition. You ask the Lord to comfort you, to heal you, to bless you with great intensity, and rightly so. And that reveals what's on your heart. And you properly go to God with, him, with those desires. I'm not at all saying you should not do, do that. We also reveal our hearts through our most enthusiastic words, don't we? Some among us may have re recently gotten engaged or married or welcomed a new child or grandchild into the family, or maybe you found a new job or achieved a new personal goal. And when these things happen, or your favorite team wins, or you find a $20 bill on the street, uh, you celebrate, you, you tell someone, uh, and this is right, acknowledging that God is the giver of every good gift. 
but why are we so slow to pray for the advance of the kingdom of God? And why are we so neglectful, fearful, or even ashamed to tell people about the greatest news given us, the news of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer for yourself? Not the daily bread petition, that's, that one comes easily, but that God would advance his kingdom, not only in others, but in yourself. Because before I can pray for God to extend his kingdom into the world, and before I can share the good news of Christ with others, I need God to do a renewing work in me. And you need the same. We should pray fervently about all kinds of needs and wants, and we should tell others of the good news of God's blessings of many kinds. But the advance of the kingdom of God can only rise up through the clutter of our hearts to be the subject of our most fervent prayers and our most enthusiastic words only to the extent that we taste its sweetness for ourselves. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus commends them. They were being generally faithful as a church. He even mentions their good works. But they had forgotten to keep first things first. They had abandoned the love of Christ that they had when they first came to know him. Do you remember, Christian, the love that you had swelling up in your heart when you first realized God's love for you in Christ, his free and full forgiveness, his fatherly affection for you, unconditioned by any sin that you have? Jesus died painfully and in great disgrace to pay for your sins in full. Christian, Jesus loves you. He rose again from the dead to justify you before God. Your Lord loves you. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father to continue to pray for you, even to this moment. The Lord Jesus loves you. He will return to raise your dead body and mine from the grave and to bring you into his eternal perfected kingdom. In Christ, God loves you. And when you cultivate, remembering daily the costly, boundless love God has for you in Christ, you want to pray for his kingdom to come into the world. You want to pray that Jesus would take over more and more lives, more and more of life, and you want to tell others about him because it's the best news there is. You taste of his sweetness. He's worthy and he's building a kingdom of a multitude so great that only he can number it from every nation, tongue, people, and tribe. And when you know the greatness and goodness of this king, you want to exalt him. You want to see others join in that kingdom to exalt him. Do you long to see the world change? A few months ago, we completed another four-year election cycle here in the United States, and we heard all kinds of Candidates making all kinds of promises to essentially build a kingdom here on earth.
But does an election really change a nation or the world? Not fundamentally, no matter who wins or loses. But God wills to change the world. And he will change it through us, his church. Yes, through acts of, sci of kindness such as feeding impoverished widows, but only as such acts of kindness complement, not distract from, our prayers for God to build his kingdom on earth until Jesus comes and our proclamation of the good news about him. There are all kinds of ministries that we can carry out as individual Christians and together as a church. And maybe God is calling you to one of them. I don't, I don't want to dissuade anyone from using his or her gifts who's listening to this sermon. But only as together, as we together as a church, as congregations, keep first things first, only then can we prioritize the advance of Christ's loving rule over our lives throughout the world through prayer and speaking the word to others? Only then will he use us to change the world in the way he commands and desires. He wants to change the world through Grace Presbyterian Church and through all churches that faithfully confess Christ. It starts with the kingdom coming anew to every believer here. So let's pray now for just that. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need a fresh infilling of your spirit. We need to remember daily the good news of Christ, your undeserved love for us by placing us in him through faith alone. Would you awaken us to this beautiful reality and therefore cause us to ask you daily for the kingdom to come. Use us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.